Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. I've been thinking a lot about uh, trees lately and our church's vision because we have a vision of having deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit for the glory of God with our lives. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about trees lately, partly because I've planted around 100 trees this year, uh, mostly, mostly at our family farm. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about what's needed for these trees to survive because it takes a lot of work to plant trees, right? And uh, trees have a lot of competition uh, for the roots, you know. So I'll I'll take a shovel and I'll cut that layer of sod, you know, the prairie grass, cut that out of there, plant the tree there, maybe put some mulch around the tree or some weed barrier, pray for rain. I'm, I'm all about trying to help these trees survive, get their roots established, because roots are important. Uh, the other day, I was at a, a friend's house for a birthday party. It was last Sunday for one of the kids uh, had a birthday party. And they, had, they told me that they had this, this tree in their yard for basically the whole time they've lived there. Before they moved in, this tree was planted there, and they've been there for a long time. But this tree failed to grow. So year after year after year, this tree is sitting there, planted by the sidewalk, and it just never goes anywhere. And so finally, they've decided to dig this tree up. And you know, they went to dig it up, they started digging around it, and they just grab the tree and they lift it right out of the ground, just like that. It's been in the ground for years, but they pulled it up just like it was planted yesterday. The roots were still in a ball. Whoever planted that tree never took the root ball off out of it, you know, and spread those roots out so that it would grow. And so year after year, it's just sitting there with its roots balled up. It reminded me that roots matter. Roots matter big time. As a church, we have this vision of being a a healthy, balanced fruit tree, a refreshing fruit tree. And if if a tree is going to bear fruit... It has to have properly placed roots. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say, he said, some people's response to the gospel is is like a seed that's planted on shallow, uh, rocky soil. And he said, uh, the, the seed springs up quickly there. You know, it sprouts quickly, but he says they, they have no depth in themselves. And so when, uh, the sun sunshine, right? The, the, the blazing sun of affliction or persecution arises, that seed gets scorched and it withers, it dries up. It doesn't go anywhere. But he says if the roots would spread out, if the seed would, would spread out its roots in good soil, it can overcome incredible obstacles and bear much fruit. So that's sort of what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 14. The gospel 
is advancing in this first missionary journey of Paul. It's going out to the Gentiles, and so does the opposition. The gospel advances, and the reception is increasing, but so is the opposition. So are the obstacles. Because of the nature of these chapters, we've been uh, these chapters in the book of Acts, we've been talking a lot about evangelism and sharing our faith, and I'm wondering if any of you guys have, have tried sharing your faith recently with someone. And uh, how'd that go? Right? Maybe you've uh, experienced a little rejection, maybe a little opposition, maybe a cold shoulder or two. Um, maybe since you've become a believer, may, you, you know, your friends and your family uh, just kind of poke a little fun at your faith here and there. You ever, you ever experienced that? A little opposition there. How do you respond? How, do you retreat? Do you become silent? Do you just kind of tend to get quiet when you're opposed? Do you start to compromise and, and try, to, try to blend in with the world? Well, Paul and Barnabas are going to be our living illustrations this morning on how to respond to opposition. And at this point in their journey up here... Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, they were leaving Pisidian Antioch and were going to Iconium and Lystra and Derby. Uh, this is in the south central region of Turkey, modern day Turkey, um, the area known as Galatia. And uh, they've gone into Antioch and they have preached the gospel. Many believed, many didn't. The city was polarized. <laughs> And then they were driven out of town. Well, see, let's see what's going to happen in Iconium now. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the first thing we're going to see in our outline today is the gospel advance to Iconium in verses 1 through 7. Having left Pisidian Antioch, they travel this well-known road in the picture there uh, called the Via Sebaste, the imperial road, the royal road. And this was a road built uh, back in six. Uh, B.C. as a military road. Caesar Augustus, I think, was the, the ruler who did that. But he, he built this military road that was going to allow Rome to respond quickly to these attacks or these, uh, I don't know, these attacks from the, the, the barbaric people of the Taurus Mountains in this area who were very anti-Rome, right? Even Alexander the Great said the toughest part of his campaign was going through these mountains and they all these, these, these just undeveloped tribes out here in the Taurus Mountains really gave them a run for their money. <laughs> and uh, so this Rome was, uh, this, this road was here to help pacify these, these mountainous tribes. And the reason why I point this out is because uh, the gospel, these roads 
it seems like God had these roads built at just the right time so that when the gospel came, that gospel could go out quickly. It was carried efficiently down these Roman roads, and apparently there were so many that if they were connected end to end, they would circle the earth twice. And uh, a lot of these roads are still there today. But uh, Iconium is about 90 miles down the road, and today this is a massive city called Konya, and there's millions of people there. In Paul's days, it would have been uh, much smaller, but because it was on this, this route, it was still a bustling city. It was a, an administrative capital, a culturally mixed city. It had travelers and traders and farmers and ranchers coming through. And uh, look, at what, look at the first thing that Paul and Barnabas do. They strategically, just like we've seen them do, go to the synagogue first. It's a strategic witness that they have. If they, if they go preaching the gospel uh, downtown in the Agora first, in the marketplace, right, they're probably not going to be let in to the synagogue. So they go to the synagogue first, and you have to think too, and we'll notice this when it comes to their witness at Lystra uh, in the middle of this chapter, that uh, it's much easier to witness to people who already have a biblical worldview. Right? It's a lot easier to witness to Jews who already have the expectation of a Jewish Messiah. You're gonna, we're going to get to Lystra. Paul's not even going to get to the gospel because he's got to establish a biblical worldview first about a creator. Okay, we'll get to that. But um, I like what Stephen Gurr said in his uh, commentary. He said their experience in Iconium, when compared to Antioch, where they just were, is just it's the same song but a different verse. It's almost... Uh, a mirror image of what happened in, a, in Antioch. They preach, many believe, many don't. The city's polarized, and then they're driven out of town, led by an instigation uh, of Jewish leaders and the city leaders. But uh, these Jewish leaders are going to poison the people's minds against the apostles and embitter the people against them with their lies. And it's amazing to think of the ups and downs that... that uh, but just put yourself in Paul and Barnabas' shoes. I mean, you come into the city, you preach, all these people believe, but eventually here comes the persecution, and it's just like, oh, hallelujah, people believe, and then the next day, oh man, our life's on the line again. You know, <laughs> it's just up and down, and up and down, and that's, you know, the nature of gospel ministry, isn't it? It's what you expect. When you go out and you preach the gospel, you expect opposition. Opposition is expected in gospel advancement. They go side by side, opposition and acceptance to the gospel. And we have to admit that the gospel is narrow. Jesus said this gospel is going to divide. But it's better to preach it than not to preach it because there's eternal destinies at stake. So you can't quit when people oppose you and the gospel that you carry. It'd be foolish to quit. Because that's the nature of the gospel, right? You should go into it with that expectation. Um, there was a, a quarterback, Sonny Jurgensen, with the Washington Redskins, who was going through a slump. And someone asked him if he was going to quit. And he's going through a hard time. Are you going to quit? And he said, no, I don't want to quit. I've been in this game long enough to know that every quarterback, every week of the season, is either going to spend his time in the penthouse or the outhouse. <laughs> I thought that was excellent. Ministries like that. It has its ups and it has its downs in the, in the penthouse or in the outhouse. Some believe, some gather stones to throw at you. But you move on by faith and you don't operate by your feelings because you know you have something that is worth it, right? It's worth it. It's eternal. 
I also want you to notice uh, where they're drawing their courage and their boldness from. We could call their Jewish, Jewish uh, chutzpah or moxie, their boldness. You see, you're just going to pick up on that throughout this chapter. And boldness is kind of a theme in Acts, isn't it? Uh, it's just boldness, boldness, boldness. The, the, these, these, this early church has boldness. Where does it come from? Well, you see it right there in verse 3. They were speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. That's where they get it from. They get it from the, the Holy Spirit as they rely upon the Lord. Remember Acts chapter 4? The persecution comes and, they, and what do they do? They pray. They're relying on the Lord. They say, Lord, take note of their threats. And give us boldness. They didn't say, Lord, stop all these threats and persecutions. They said, Lord, take note of it and give us boldness in the midst of it. They pray for it. And everything that these guys are doing in the book of Acts, it's a, it's a, it's a theme. They're, they're depending on the power of God's grace to do what God has called them to do. And I've said it a lot recently, but if God calls you to something, He gives you the grace to do it. Right? He, he don't... He don't write bad checks. Okay, if, he, if he orders a meal, he's got more than enough to pay for that meal. He calls you to something, he gives you the grace to do it. Amen? And it's his, it's his spirit that's allowing them to do these things, to do the miracles, to so speak that people believe. They're, they're dependent on him. And by the way, did you notice that? They so speak, it says in my translation, that people believe. They spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. Did you know you can be bold and not speak in such a way that people believe? <laughs> you ever seen any bold guys out there getting persecuted and because they deserve it? Right? Some street preachers that don't really know the gospel and just preach hell and damnation. They probably deserve it, right? You can be a bold, noisy gong and deserve the persecution. We want to be bold, but we want to speak in such a manner that it's winsome, right? So uh, let's look at that next principle. They rely on the Lord for their strength and their boldness. Without the Lord, how much can we do? We, we read John fifteen five this morning, right? Without the Lord, we can do nothing, nothing, not a thing. And it, it's not by man's might. It's not by man's power. It's by his spirit. And that's the whole reason Jesus said, wait until, wait here in Jerusalem until, remember chapter 1? Until the Spirit comes upon you, and then I'll empower you to be my witnesses. They had no power until that Spirit came upon them. And so, um, he was the one that was empowering them to be witnesses. And it's interesting, you know, we, we tend not to like opposition. We hesitate, we cower, we retract when that opposition comes. But look at, look at Paul and Barnabas' response in verse, uh, I think it's verse 2. That doesn't sound right, but... Uh, yeah, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, look at Paul and Barnabas' response. Therefore, they spent a long time there. Isn't that interesting? They have all this opposition. Therefore, they spent a long time there. The opposition causes them to stay and to testify to the word of God's grace. And as time goes on, the city is saturated with the gospel but uh, more death threats rise, just like in Antioch, and, and it's time to move on. And I like this idea here because uh, they're bold, but they aren't dumb either, right? <laughs> the Lord needs a living saint. They know when it's time to move on. Uh, it's kind of like 
God's sovereignty, right? God's sovereign over my life, but it doesn't mean I'm going to go play in the street, right? They know when it's time to move on. So they, they advance to this province of Lyconia, to two different cities, namely uh, Lystra and Derby. And Lystra is about 20 miles south. Derby is about 60 miles southeast of Iconium. And they have a somewhat amusing experience here. Look at verse 7. They continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. He's lame from his mother's womb. He'd never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying, In the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good, and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. And so we see the gospel advance to Lystra and Derby. And I want to, this could be a footnote, but I've made it a main point. I want to share this with you because um, just like in that video we watched, a lot of people lack trust in their Bibles. That's the reason they don't read it. That's the reason they don't apply it. That's the reason why we are where we are, because of higher criticism and things like that. But uh, this lack of trust in the Bible has fostered the atheism you see today. And you won't, you won't be out there sharing the gospel if you don't believe that this here is the Word of God. You won't give your life for it. And so I want to show you something uh, to reinforce our trust in the Bible. Um, for a long time... Luke's accuracy, Luke's writing history, right? He said to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, he's, he's writing down the history for Theophilus. He wants to know the, the history of the Christian movement. And uh, for a long time, his accuracy was called into question because it says Paul and Barnabas left Iconium and they crossed over into... Uh, uh, so they left Iconium and crossed over into Lyconia, which is a, a region, a territory, a province... And the reason why this was called into question, because there's a lot of records that say, Paul, or says that Iconium was for some time a Lyconian city, so it didn't make sense to say they left Iconium to go to, uh, I'm getting these words confused, Iconium to go to Lyconia, sorry. But uh, in my introduction to Acts, if you remember this, I told you about this brilliant but atheistic uh, Scottish archaeologist guy named uh, William Ramsey. You remember that name? William Ramsey, he, he believed Luke's record was inaccurate. And uh, so in his day, about 150 years ago, uh, many of these locations in Acts, they'd been lost, they had been 
unidentified. They didn't know where these things were at, where this all took place. But for years, this guy actually took a Bible, went with Bible and a shovel in his hand, and he went and he retraced Luke's steps here, Paul's steps that Luke recorded, looking for the geological and archaeological evidence. And he's actually out to try and disprove Luke. Okay? He doesn't like Luke necessarily, but it's actually at this point and with, with this, this, uh, this detail of leaving Iconium and going to Lyconia, uh, it's at this point in his research that he started to have what he called his first change of judgment. His first change of judgment, he, as he called it. And he, he started to become a strong defender of Luke's historicity. And uh, he discovered Iconium was, for a short time, between the years 37 and 72 A.D., when Luke wrote, it actually was a Lyconian city. So, um, or it wasn't a Lyconian city. It was Lyconian, then it wasn't. It actually became part of Phrygia, and then it goes back to being a Lyconian city. And it's the city is kind of on the border of both of these uh, provinces, and it was kind of tossed back and forth for some time. But Luke's statement, when he wrote this, it was dead on. It was on when Luke wrote this. It was on when Paul visited around A.D. 47 and 48. And Ramsey said that every time he turned over a shovel, he found evidence of exactly the things that Luke described and that Luke was one of the greatest historians. He said this, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the harshest of treatment. Another man, A.N. Sherwin White, said, for, the acts, for acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. He says, any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. Isn't that great? You know why that's important, right? If we don't believe this is the Word of God, are we going to give our lives for it? Am I going to give my life to preach and teach it? No. See, it's, it's, it's lack of trust in the Word of God which bombed Europe, basically, into darkness, atheistic darkness, and it's happening here, too. It traveled right overseas. What, what did Satan do in the garden? What was the first thing he had Adam and Eve, or had Eve question? God's word. Did God really say that? One of the reasons, guys, we can be bold witnesses because is because God's word is trustworthy. You can trust it. You can share it. So trust the word of God. You want to be a bold witness, trust the word of God amidst the opposition to it. Now at Lystra, there's no mention of a synagogue, though there is likely some Jews there because Timothy, he's going to come from here in chapter 16. And uh, his mother is Jewish, we know that, but they needed at least 10 Jews to have a synagogue, so maybe they didn't have a synagogue. Uh, whatever the case, it may very well, well be that Paul's preaching in the Agora, the, uh, he's in the marketplace where he notices this lame man. And uh, one of the things you notice here is that uh, Lystra revered uh, Zeus, this, this Greek god, the chief god of the pantheon, basically. There was a temple to Zeus, it says it right there. Um, just outside the city in verse 13, and the Greek god of Hermes was viewed as the messenger for Zeus. So two different Greek gods, 
And uh, Hermes was kind of smaller in stature than Zeus. Zeus would have been the big bearded guy, and uh, Hermes is lesser messenger. And uh, archaeological discoveries near Lystra include, guess what, dedications of statues and altars to Zeus and Hermes, just like Luke said. Um, there's one that even mentions the priests of Zeus, like you see here. But to understand why people try to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes, it's helpful to hear about a fanciful legend that this, this old guy, this local guy named Ovid wrote. So he wrote that the Roman gods, um, Jupiter and Mercury, which are, the, which are the equivalents to the Greek gods of uh, Zeus and Hermes, well, apparently these two gods once came into their area in human form. They took on human form, and they went around, and they were knocking on doors, right? So they went to a thousand homes in that area seeking hospitality, and everybody turned them away except two people, an elderly couple named Philemon and Bacchus. Or I don't know how you say that name, but um, anyway, they're the only people, these, this elderly couple who welcomed the disguised gods. And so, in response, the God judged everyone but this married couple, and they granted this married couple two favors, and their favor, their, what they wanted was to be caretakers of the temple, number one, and then they wanted to die together so that they wouldn't have to grieve the loss of the other. And the gods granted their wish, get this, by turning their home into the temple and then turning them into a pair of, of trees adorning the steps to the temple. Wouldn't you like that? To be turned into a couple of trees? See, our vision, we want to be like a tree. We don't want to actually become a tree, right? right? Some reward. I shouldn't have let you in, right? See, when I die, I don't want to be a tree. I want to, I want to be present with the Lord. I don't know about you. Um, but here we are, though. Think of this. 40 years later, after, after Ovid wrote this, Paul and Barnabas show up, and they think, that they're Zeus and Hermes, because they've got divine power. And what's interesting is a lot of commentators talked about this, is that uh, they may even have a similar look, you could say, to Zeus and, and Hermes. Um, Zeus was the large bearded guy, Hermes again, the, the, the speaker. And uh, who did the speaking? Paul is what it says, the chief speaker, right? And so we don't know if it's true or not, but there's this old writing called the Acts of Paul. It's kind of apocryphal writing. And uh, this, this Onesiphorus guy in this, in this old writing is a resident of Iconium. And he describes Paul as, uh, so he, he actually sets out to meet Paul in, on his way into Iconium. And he describes him as a man small of stature, bald-headed, bow-legged, eyebrows meeting, and uh, a nose that's large and crooked, hooked, but he's full of grace. <laughs> so I, I don't really know. We don't know. We don't know if that's what Paul looked like. But uh, I don't know. I think it's 2 Corinthians says, you know, he's, his, his letters are weighty, but, you know, in person, not much to look at or something like that. And not much to listen to, maybe. I don't know. We don't know if that's what Paul looked like, but it is interesting in light of their comparison to Zeus and Hermes. So Barnabas might have been a larger guy and Paul's smaller guy, at least. But... Um, for us, though, we're going to look at Paul's healing, this guy, and say, whoa, right? Look at the power of Jesus flowing through this guy, right? Jesus is working through Paul. Isn't Acts the continuing acts of Jesus through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, 
The people of Lystra, Lystra don't see it that way. They say these men are powerful gods. They think the power is emanating from Paul himself. Rather than seeing Paul as a channel, they see Paul as the source of power. He's, these, this is Zeus and Hermes. They visited us again, and we better not screw it up this time, or we're all going to be judged, right? Let's not turn these two gods away. And so there's this idolatrous passion, and they, they take and they parade this oxen draped with garland, and they start to try to offer sacrifices to Paul, and Paul and Barnabas have to tear their, their robes to try and get their attention and, and uh, call it blasphemy, right? That's what they did when there was a blasphemy. They'd tear their robes and uh, say, man, this is not good. They tried to stop these guys. And so this crowd, though, it's interesting, is so far off base in their worldview that, that they can't even share the gospel with them yet. I assume that between verses 18 and 19, where it says the Jews eventually come and, and win over the crowds, and, um, I imagine that he got to the point where he did share the gospel, but, yeah, but right now, Paul has to start from scratch. I mean, he has to just convince them of the idea that there's a, a living creator God, right? I mean, I mean how are you going to introduce the Messiah to, of special revelation, right? Special revelation, the Son incarnate, and um, the Word of God, how are you going to share that special revelation if you don't have the foundation of general revelation, just the fact that there's one Creator God and all these idols are vain and worthless? So you've got to start with the Creator. So often, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this in our witnessing. If we're going to be winsome witnesses, if we're going to be lights in the darkness, we've got to take people back to, back to the beginning. We've got to take them back to Genesis. That was like a couple of weeks ago, I think. That's important, isn't it? Paul does it here. He does it in Acts 17 in Athens. And it's what we're doing today, isn't it? That's why we have ICR, Institute for Creation Research. That's why we have Answers in Genesis. That's why these ministries are important, because if you don't understand there's a creator, you're much less likely to look for a redeemer. You've got to start at the beginning, and we're finding ourselves living in a pluralistic culture where people have no basic knowledge of God, no basic knowledge of the Bible. The worldview of evolutionists, I mean, people's worldviews are so off base in evolution that we have to often establish a creator in their minds first in order to lead them to Christ. And Satan understands that. Satan understands that. Evolution destroys the foundation for laying the gospel. The good news, though, is that Paul says in Romans 1 and 2, creation is on our side. Creation's on our side. Uh, because of creation, every human being out there, whether they admit it or not, has an innate knowledge of God. The, this world, creation, and everything in it is, 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 is basically preaching day after day after day. Doesn't Psalm 19 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Night after night, they pour forth speech. They pour forth knowledge about God. And just, just, you know, put Psalm 19 and, and Romans 1 side by side. They go hand in hand. Paul says, look, we can learn about God just from looking at creation. And that's what, what Paul says uh, to this, this group at Lystra. He says, look, God, God hasn't left himself without a witness here. Who do you think's running the show? Who do you think's keeping that sun coming up every morning? Who do you think's bringing you the rain? Right? Amen to that. Who do you think's bringing you the rains this, this spring season? 
Oh man, we have so much to be thankful for. God sends the rain to satisfy our hearts. But before we're, you know, too hard on these gullible Lystrans, these uh, idolaters, let's think, that, let's think about this. What vain and worthless idols do we have in our lives that we're living for, right? Paul exhorted them to turn away from their vain idols. Well, we've all got our own idols that we tend to worship. Actually, we've constantly got to guard our hearts from, from idols. What are some of our idols today? Maybe our idols are putting our identity in something other than Christ. You know, we might not carry around like they do in India, a big goofy-looking elephant man, you know, and worship that. When I was in South America, they carried around the statues of Mary, and they carried around statues of, I don't know, weird dolls and things like that, and they bloody themselves on the streets, crawling behind this thing, burning candles and offering incense and getting all passionate, just like these guys. Man, we might not do that, at least here in western Nebraska, but what do we worship? I think we worship our identity sometimes, right? We put our identity, rather than putting it in Christ, we put it in what we do. We, put our, we have the idol of money and fame and fortune and maybe our possessions, our appearance, how we look, comfort. Our idol can be comfort, right? It can be entertainment. An idol can be anything that becomes more important to us than God, something that we start to live for and put above Him. And if we're not careful, I don't know if you know this, but idols bite. <laughs> idols are they're not very friendly because you put your worth or your, your identity in something and then you lose that something, it throws you into a tailspin, don't it? I don't know how many... Farmers, I've heard. I, I, I wrestled with this one for a long time, right? I'm a farmer, a third generation kind of thing, and I've been called away from that farm. That was hard for me. That was really hard to leave that farm, man. That was my kingdom for a while. I was living for that thing. I don't know how many stories. I heard a story last year of a fellow in a Berean church. See, we're not, we're not above and beyond this. A fellow in a Berean church on the other side of the state took his own life. Farmer lost his farm, took his own life. Where was his identity at? It was in that farm, right? That was his idol. We've got to make sure to get rid of these idols. It's not, it's, it, you know, it's fun and games while there, there are idols, but as soon as you lose them, it's not fun and games anymore. That's when people spiral downhill, don't they? So we've got to make sure that even the good things, and God gives us all sorts of good things to enjoy, right? I want you to enjoy the things that you have. I want you to enjoy the things that God blesses you with, enjoy creation, but we cannot and enjoy the fishing, right? But don't let it become, I enjoy fishing, but I can't let it, don't let it become an idol in your life that gets placed above God. Guard your hearts from idols, John says. Well, anyway, maybe you don't like that message well, Lystra didn't like it either. Um, look at verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, and they supposed him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up, and he entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, and, and they make more disciples. So they stone him so bad that they think he's dead. And 
and they think he's dead. I don't think he actually did die. But uh, anyway, he gets up and he keeps going to Derby. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a touch of miracle here either. It seems like, man, how in the world did this guy get up? You know the disciples were praying for him, right? Um, so there's at least a touch of restoration miracle here to be able to see Paul to actually get up and move on and go to Derby the next day. That's insane. Uh, what a guy. That guy is undaunted. He's unbelievable. He's a great example for us. But uh, anyway, this, this where he gets stoned here, he, this has to be when Paul writes the letter to Galatians in chapter 6, 17. He talks about the scars that he bears on his body. You know, the scars are for Christ. Um, I think that's what he's talking about here. He's reminding the Galatians of this incident. But uh, let's, let's look at the last verses here in our chapter, verses 21 through 28. We look at the gospel follow-up upon return. They actually go back through all these cities. After they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God through many troubles. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And that's Antioch of Syria. They go all the way back to their home church in Syria. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time there with the disciples. And so it's interesting, right? Rather than, you know, journeying back across Turkey there, just going to Antioch on land, Syria and Antioch, they go these disciples courageously go back all the way through these cities where they've been mistreated and persecuted and threatened. Isn't that amazing? Talk about courage. Talk about boldness. The audacity of these guys. Um, they, they have some follow-up to do with these, these new believers. They've got new believers in all these cities, but these believers need to get established in Christ. Kind of like Oh, Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him and established in your faith. So Paul wants to see them rooted. He wants to see them established. And he does two main things that I've summarized. We're not going to look into all the details. But uh, number one, he appoints qualified elders to lead the church. These new fledgling churches need trusted, humble, qualified leadership with a sufficient degree of maturity to care for the flock, for God's flock. Paul spent enough time there apparently to get to know these guys, who these guys were, and surely the locals in that church community, our community already knew of men who were of good character and integrity and had a sincere faith that they could appoint as elders, uh, elders to... Uh, to lead the flock, every church needs a plurality of elder shepherd pastors to lead the flock, overseers. Secondly, they encourage them in their faith journey. You know, one of the best things that we can do 
for the disciples, we make for new believers is to keep them from the disillusionment of thinking that now that you've received Christ, life is going to be smooth sailing. Right? It's not, because we're going to see Paul shipwrecked in the book of Acts. Okay? It's not always smooth sailing. New life in Christ, is it not amazing? It is unreal. It is absolutely amazing. You have new, new life, you have a new identity, you have a new purpose, you have a mission, you've got new power, you've got spiritual gifts, God blesses your socks off. Right? He, you really start to know what it's like to live an abundant life, but at the same time, you are now in a spiritual war in enemy territory. You've got an enemy within called the sin nature that's going to war against the divine nature called the spirit. And then you have an enemy without, which is Satan and the world system that he is overseeing. Uh, They're going to cause you trouble. They're going to cause you hardship. And that's part of the faith journey until heaven or until the rapture when Christ comes to get us. He doesn't want them to be disillusioned seed. You see that? He doesn't want them to be that seed that's planted in the shallow soil. He wants them firmly rooted so that they don't get scorched by the persecution that's coming. And it is. It's coming for them. He wants them rooted in Christ because when you're rooted in Christ, nothing can steal your joy, not your circumstances. That can't even take that from you. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Philippians and study the context of it. Paul's sitting in a jail commanding us to rejoice in the Lord always. So even persecution is something that we can rejoice in. That's what we have in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Even in persecution, we rejoice. Why? Because we have something worth living for. Something worth living for. You know the Savior. You know eternal life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Nothing can steal your joy, not even death. Where's your sting? Where's your sting? Experience hardship the Bible says, is to only become more like your Savior. You're just becoming more Christ-like. It's an amazing thing. So keep looking to Jesus, our perfect example. Paul, excellent example. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But who's our perfect example? Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews says. Keep looking to Him. Keep looking to Christ, the one who endured hostility from sinners so that you don't grow weary, so that you don't lose heart. Look to Him. Kind of like the Hebrews, we have not yet shed blood for our faith in our culture. But the opposition is increasing. It is increasing. And uh, according to Matthew 5.11, Jesus still considers mistreatment and slander as forms of persecution. So it's not just martyrdom. It's, it's, it's words, it's ideas, it's mistreatment, it's, it's being maligned in various ways. Kind of like the way these Jews were poisoning the minds of the people against the Christians. Don't you see that happening today? You see this in the TV shows. Some of these medical shows, especially, for some reason. These TV shows, there's articles out there, there's all these smear campaigns against Christians that make us look like the bad guys, that make us look like bigots, that make us look like prigs. Okay? You know what those things do to us? You know what those words and ideas do to us as Christians? They, they do a few things. Number one, they silence us. 
Satan knows that words, words hurt. Satan knows we put too much of our identity in our acceptance with people. So, number one, it silences us from sharing our faith. Why? Because we don't want to look like that bigot and that prig, right? So we don't share when we know we should because we don't want to be identified as one of those. And then the second thing it does is it carnalizes us. We, we start to try to blend in with the world because we don't want to look so narrow. We don't want to be that narrow-minded Christian over there, right? And then the third thing we do is we start to, we start to, we, well, we start to look like the world, and then we start to uh, try to mix up our Christianity with the ideas of the world, and the, you know, maybe we start entering into interfaith dialogues with you know Muslims and say, well, we all believe in basically the same God. We start to syncretize. Yeah, Christianity and Mormonism—it's about the same thing. Really. We don't have the same gospel, we don't have the same scriptures, we don't have the same Jesus. That's lukewarm, guys. That's what Jesus would call lukewarm Christianity. The silenced one, the carnalized one, the syncretizing one. And that's why we have to aim to pattern our lives, guys, after Christ and His Word. And not after the Christian community. Because the Christian community, and you learn this in the book of Revelation with Jesus' comments to the churches, is that the Christian community doesn't always hold tight to the Word of God and to what they're called to. The Christian community can slide downhill really fast. But you know, we look around at our Christian community and we start to think, boy, I'm doing really good. Everybody else is doing this. I'm keeping up with the Joneses over there. They're Christians. Is that the standard that we're called to live by? The standard of the Christian community that's going downhill? No, our standard is Christ. Our standard is God's Word. And we've got to be the Christians who get into His Word and are on our knees in prayer so that we can live the way God has called us to live. We can be that distinct people that He's called us to be so that we can be different. We can be bold. Hebrews says, look to Christ for your joy and your strength. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to, the, to others around you. Don't look to me. Don't look to the Christian community. You look to Christ for your joy and for your strength and for your standards then you'll be like a seed planted in good soil that can overcome incredible obstacles, kind of like that tree in the picture up there that broke a rock right in two. I've got a prayer for us this morning if the worship team wants to come up. This, let's just pray this one together, kind of like last week. Lord, just like this early church in Acts, we pray that you would make us bold witnesses for you. Lord, we pray that you would make us, like Paul said in Romans 1.16, unashamed of the gospel. And that we would be witnesses whose eternal joy is not phased by persecutions or circumstances, but that the persecution itself would just make us more bold 
that we would stand out more, Lord. May we refuse to be lukewarm Christians that blend in with the world and syncretize with the world. We don't want to be lukewarm. We want to be bold. Help us to stand out. Give us the grace we need to stand out and be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it, the salt and light that we're called.